Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Stocks for beginners. My belief is really pretty simple, right? When you're interacting with a financial institution, you need to understand the rules of the game. And most people don't really understand the rules of the financial institutions. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today, my guest is John Smallwood. John is the president of Smallwood Wealth Management and Affiliated Companies, providing investment consulting and financial plan design for corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and professionals. Hi, John. Hey, Phil. How are you? Good, good. And um, you have your own podcast, Wealth Curve Talk. Yes. How's that been going? It's been great. It's been a great experience to share the ideas that I want to share in a forum that people can consume it when they want to, which is a great experience. And it's great to have conversations with experts as well. And um, I think people are yearning these days for something more than the um, the usual 30-second soundbite that they're exposed to in the media. Yeah. And, I, and I, I'm a believer in you know, everybody's talking about marketing and saying that you should have these quick, you know, two, three minutes and that's it. And I really think the developed conversation that's 30, 40 minutes diving into a topic that may be foreign to you is really important. And that's one of the the focuses of the podcast is to take an area of personal wealth management or financial planning, whatever you want to call it, and dig a little deeper and a little wider to take the the things that I seem to take for granted as you know, normal conversation and really expand people's horizons. That's really the, the focus. Well, let's uh, start with your friend, Barry Dyke, who I heard, I think he was on the latest episode, and um, he mentioned uh, communist funds. I think he was referring to big ETF providers who are collecting rents from people and taking no risk. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really Barry wrote a really interesting book, you know, The Pirates of Manhattan, which is really talking about how money is taken from regular people. Okay. And what the financial institutions are teaching us is the exact opposite of what they're doing. Okay. And that's really what his purpose of that book was. And what he was saying is you have these large, super mega wealth managers that are either doing, you know, a combination of mutual funds and exchange traded funds. And they appear to be free or cheap, super cheap. And everybody's focused on cheap, 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 cheap. And they're gathering these assets and the risk is all on you and I, the investor. And what's happening is the way these funds are making money is not from the the management fees because it's on billions and billions of dollars, but it's more so from stock loan and other related things that, you know, from a shorting perspective of they own a tremendous amount of securities, Barry's position is they should be paying you to park the money, not the other way around, which is the other way around. And what's interesting is the trading costs in all of these things are relatively buried inside of fund expenses that are not really, you know, forthright out there. I mean, they're there, but they're not really, you know, they're not published data. Everybody thinks the expense ratio is what the trading costs are. And that's just the operating expense. It has nothing to do with trading. So what he's pushing for is more 
the big brother is basically taking your money is what he's basically saying. And you need to be aware of it. It's usually referred to as the MER, the management cost, isn't it? And um, it's marketed and, and people seem to perceive it as being incredibly cheap. But Barry thinks that they should be paying you for the money. <laughs> yeah. And it's what's funny is I look back and there was a book many, many, many years ago put out by John Bogle, Bogle, however you say it, from Vanguard, okay? The inventor of these things, yeah. And what he put out there was this conversation or this thing about disclosure of fees. And in there, there was this chart that he would talk about the management expense, the internal administration fees, but he was showing it on load and no load funds, which back when he published this in the early 90s, that's really what the focus was, is load versus no load. And what he dug into it was that the trading expenses were, you know, somewhere two to three times what the management expenses were, and that's where the money was. And when you looked at load versus no load fund, the expenses were the same. And, you know, the average cost of a mutual fund was like two point, you know, something percent when you added in both sides of it, even though the administration fee was 0.5. And it came from the trading expenses, and that's how these banks and everybody were making money is more so on the trading expenses, the soft dollars, as they're considered in some cases. Yeah. So let's talk then about um, another podcast uh, topic that um, seems to touch on this. And these are the five rules of financial institutions, which you seem very passionate about. (laughs) Yeah. So my belief is, is really pretty simple, right? Is when you're interacting with a financial institution, you need to understand the rules of the game. And most people don't really understand the rules of the financial institutions, right? So we, for the last 30 years, we've been talking about this and it it really comes down to the financial institutions, whether it be a bank, a mortgage company, a mutual fund company, insurance company, you know, nobody's immune from this, right? So the conversation is they want to make you feel very comfortable we're big, we're safe, we're strong, we have a history, we have a track record, we have this, right? So all the focus is on that safety and making sure that you're comfortable with the safety. The second rule that they're trying to get you to is to give you money on a systematic basis, right? So what we see is you have to think about this in a macro picture. You have to think about this in the big picture, right? Which is if I'm a financial institution, I need to get money as quickly and efficiently and as systematically into the business, right? Because I have salaries and rents and mortgages and all kinds of things to pay as a financial institution. So all of the strategies that I'm promoting is would I rather get the money over a long extended period of time as a financial institution or should I promote things that are good that I give the money or I receive the money as a financial institution as quickly as I possibly can. So that's when you start to think about this, which is, you know, there's a huge focus of getting your mortgage paid for and that you should do biweekly payments or make an extra payment. And what's really happening when you start thinking about it, right? Mortgage rates are at 50-year lows, even though we're up off the lows from a few months ago, we're still at 50-year lows, you know, mortgage rates sub 3%, right? So 
Don't do a 30-year mortgage because that's bad because you pay a lot of interest over the 30 years, right? Do a 15 or do a 10 or buy a 30 and make an extra payment and pay it off in you know five years or six years and be debt-free. And there's a whole bunch of you know people talking about that on the radio, some very you know popular people. But when you think about time value of money, right? If I give all the money to the bank to get my house paid for, which is a worthy pursuit, I've given all that money to the institution. And now I have an opportunity cost because I could have been investing that money for the longer run, right? So our position is that if you took the difference of the payments and you put it somewhere else, what's the break even? How much do I have to earn? Now, I look at this and say, if rates are 3% and I'm an investor in long-term investments, whether I'm a fixed income investor, bonds, right? Or I'm a stock investor, or I'm a mutual fund investor or an ETF investor. Over the long run, I should make more and I should pick up tax benefits. And what people don't tell you, if you look at it in the right way, everything that they're teaching us is to give the money faster to the institution. The faster I give the money to the institution, the less money I have personally. All right. Like I see people even with the student loans now, it's like, I got to get these student loans paid off. In the meantime, you can't buy a house. You can't move out of the basement that you're living in your parents' house. Like it just humanly possible can't happen. And you got all the loans paid for. But I have to do other things along the way that I'm not necessarily doing. Okay. And you don't have any money to do that. Or let's say the stock market drops 50% and I got my debt paid off. Big deal. I don't have any money. My grandfather used to tell me, ready cash is Aladdin's lamp. He goes, if you're like every other schmuck that doesn't have cash, when the opportunity exists itself, you're just going to be like every other schmuck, a schmuck. You know, that was a New Jersey term that he liked to use a lot. But you, know, you have to have that available cash. And I, you know, we talk to a lot of investors and they're like, oh, I got to get everything. I can't have anything in my savings account making less than 1%. And that's not true. I don't care what it's earning. You should have that ready money. And the financial institution is telling you, no, 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 get it all working, right? So rule number one is make me feel really good about giving you money. Two, let me give it to you as fast as I possibly can. Number three is miracle of compound interest. The longer you let that money sit there and grow, Phil, the better off you're going to be. You're going to have that exponential curve that we show on our websites and we show everywhere. You know, 20 years of compounding is good, but 35 years is far better because the rate, the last returns aren't made there. And that's the miracle of compound interest. There's a story that we do in some of our retirement ASAP seminars, as soon as possible, safe as possible, about would you rather have a million dollars today or get a penny doubled every day for the next 30 days. And you should do it. And I'm not going to do it now because we're going to keep on going. The math will show that you're better off to take a penny, but it doesn't make any sense because who would think that a penny would add up to anything in 30 days, right? But that's showing that compounding. But what's happening is as I do that, right, as I compound wealth up the chain and I leave it there, the financial institution gets to hang on to it for a super long time. Right. So as they do that, the fees that they're charging, whether they're making it internally from trading or from other related sources, the longer they get to hang on to the money and the more that money becomes more valuable, the higher the fees are and the compounding of the fees. You never hear a financial professional talk about compound fees. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. That's something that's a real thing that you've got to watch out for that fees compound just like interest compounds as well, and that digs into your returns. Yeah, and it digs into compounding of those fees. So you want to be moving money across different types of products so you minimize the compounding of fees. You know, we have an asset management, BM, in the business of collecting fees. You know, we do that, that's part of our business. But you have to understand how it's good and how it's bad. Along with that comes the concept of compound taxation. The longer I let money sit and grow and compound, the more the taxes become over time, like if I have an account that has 50000 in it and it makes, let's just make the number really simple, 10%. Well, 10% on 50000 is, you know, $5,000. If I pay tax in the 50% bracket, I got to pay 2500 bucks from somewhere in that account. Well, if the account grows to 500000 now I got 50000 My taxes have compounded from twenty five to 25000 that's compound taxation. Compound taxation erodes wealth like you've never seen. So when you look at these mountain charts at these mutual funds and you know all these past performance things, if you read the fine print, it never has anything to do with taxes and most of the time it doesn't really have fees on there, right? So when you you know so when you look at the compounding over this time frame, the fees, the taxes are just killing the wealth and its ability to compound, right? So you have to understand that, that you need to understand where the compound tax is, where the compound fees are. So now, once we move into what I like to call the distribution phase, here comes the fourth rule, right? The fourth rule on the distribution phase is that don't take your money out at all at one time. You're going to get taxed. You might run out of money. The sequence of returns might destroy your wealth. Back in the day when I started, we would talk about the, you know, 6% was a normal thing and then a 4% withdrawal. And now there's people that are promoting like two, two and a half percent. Now, think about 1990, interest rates were six and a half percent in the bank. So if I had a million dollars in the bank, I was getting 65,000. 10 years prior to that, you know, 1982, the 10 year treasury was 15%. I could get a CD for 15%. So that meant a million dollars could produce 150,000. Retirement planning was simplistic, right? You know, but now, now you're down here at interest rates are, you know, sub 1%. The million dollars is only worth 10,000. So now inflation has killed it, but they don't want you to take the money out at one time during your 30 to 40 year retirement. Why? Because they're going to lose the fees government's going to lose the taxation. You know, there's a whole series of things that you need to think through. And what I found over the years, as we began to develop this, is the financial institutions, the insurance companies, the banks, they keep changing the rules on us, right? And they push the risk from themselves to the individual investor. And they feel good about that. And they feel good about that. I mean, talk about Barry and talk about, you know, our whole process. Barry and I have been friends for probably 25 years in the industry. You know, we've studied under similar people. We've gone to similar conferences and it's, it's tremendous. So like, 
if you're thinking about this, if you don't understand the rules of what you're doing, like I have this conversation with kids all the time. My daughter finally is old enough to get a, you know, an ATM card. And I was looking at her transactions. I go 20 bucks here, 20 bucks there. It's 350, 350, 350. What percentage of that are you paying in fees? And she's like, oh my God, is that good? I'm like, no, it's really bad. It's really bad. So we start talking about what's realistic, but like people are paying 15, 20% in ATM fees of what they're pulling out of their money. So if you're going to spend $3 on an ATM fee, you know, you should at least take out three, $400 to get it below 1%. So it just sounds like these five rules of investing or the five rules of financial institutions is they're going to try and screw you one way or another, and you've just got to try and avoid that as much as possible. That's an overarching theme, isn't it? It's buyer beware. I mean, this is a, a conversation about getting started in investing. And what we're seeing is markets of late and the volatility, especially post-pandemic, or in, I don't know where we are in the pandemic, right? But a year ago in the pandemic, the markets have done really, really well. And there's a lot of government infusion and a lot of stimulus and a lot of money coming into the system. So there's this belief that markets will continue to grow because there's so much government stimulus. And that's where investors really need to be careful right now because it never does what we expect it's going to do. There's always going to be a black swan, isn't there? <laughs> and a black swan, by definition, is, means you just got no idea what it's going to be. You can't project anything from the past onto the future, can you? And it seems so obvious when you look back at it. Oh, my God, how could we have missed that? Oh, my God, we're morons, right? You have to be aware that this is coming. You know, trees do not grow to the sky with no boundaries, right? They cap out. Things come down. Fires, fires happen. You know, bugs and termites come in and they attack things, right? And things happen and then they sprout up and they seed again, right? Like everything has a cycle. And that's what people forget. There's cycles, okay? On the website, we have a guide. It's like the eight steps of financial planning that you can download. It's for free. You know, you have to give me your whatever your email address is, and we send it to you. But I put that out there because I wanted people to have the core of what I think it takes to be financially successful for 31 years of actually doing it. And rates of return are like at the bottom of the list. The successful people that I see all the time, they systematically slowly accumulate wealth because they control their spending. They save more, spend less, save more, spend less, right? And they they don't want to lose money because to recover from a loss is far more painful than anything else. Like most of my clients hate to lose money. Mm, who doesn't? Yeah. I mean, it took me, you know, 32 years to accumulate the money that I have, you know, working to go backwards. 50% would be quite painful. Yeah, that's right. That uh, brings me to the next question, which is about in this time of low interest rates, you've got a balance between preserving capital and taking on some risk so that you can get some sort of return from your clients. How are you achieving that balancing act? That's unique for each person, right? It really depends upon where they are in the stage. Like retirees, you're going to be doing different things because I remember I took out one of those big online savings accounts when they first came out. I had a 6.5% rate. The same accounts... 0.5. Dream time, wasn't it? Yeah, 0.5, right? It was 0.5 now. But you actually are thinking in the book that I wrote, we talk about combining multiple products together to simulate the returns, right? There is no stick it here and it's going to work because you have to factor in the taxation. You have to factor in all these different drains. 
a younger person has a different strategy. Like I'm not that concerned about the fact that your money's making 0.5 in the accumulation, right? I'm just not that concerned about it. For a young person, what I'm more focused on is savings rate. And what you want to do is you want to take money, you want to build up savings, you want to you know, participate in the retirement plan to the maximum match. So many people work for a company that says, if you put away 4%, we'll match it at 4%. The amount of people that actually do that is staggeringly low. I don't have the exact number. I'm sure there's a stat out there. I'm sure somebody listening can get the stat for me and send it to me, right? But it's strikingly low. So, you know, if I make 40,000 and I put away 1600 into the retirement plan, the company's going to match 1600 and you don't do that, what's the time value of money loss on that? It's off the charts. Especially when so many companies are offering this kind of deal for you. It's such a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you take it? Right. And it's the plugging the financial leak. So it comes down to this concept of like, how do I, how do you make the recommendation? The recommendation is you start with a blueprint, right? And it's like, go through, where's the income? Where's the money going out? What's coming out of the paycheck? What's going out in taxes? What's going out in everything and insurance costs? Like a big thing is, you know, life insurance, disability insurance, car insurance, homeowners insurance, most of those, if you don't pay them annually, have a finance charge on them. It's more to pay them monthly than it is to pay them annually. It's six and a half to seven percent, nine percent. Some of these big behemoth, you know, mutual companies that are for the benefit of all the people, they're charging you nine percent to pay it monthly. That little nine percent is a lot of money over a lot of time frame. And you're transferring it away just in the finance costs, right? So what you want to do is, you know, figure out where all the leaks are. But the idea is you want to create balance in the plan. You don't want to be in one asset class. You don't want to be in one type of thing. You want to have multiple things and you want to have the right balance of cash so that you're putting it in the right place. Okay, so a young person who's just starting out on their investing uh, journey, they've got options to put their capital into. What are some of the suggestions? I mean, what are you telling your kids how to start out and where they should be putting money? I mean, you know, should you have some in bonds? Should you have some in fixed income? Should it be all be in equities? I mean, what's the balance and how can you achieve it right from an early age when you know nothing? Exactly. And to me, it's looking at the different types of formats, right, or ownership. So we have a thing called a Roth, a Roth 401k or a Roth IRA. Most people, when you look at your tax bracket, you're in a super low tax bracket. It might be, you know, right out of college, you might be at a 10% effective bracket. And most people that I see are funding an IRA and funding a 401k. They don't even realize what a 401 Roth is, right? So one of the things that I've had my kids do is, you know, they're participating in their Roth accounts and they're getting as much money into the Roth account, pay the tax now while you're in a low tax bracket, grow without taxation, and get it out tax-free in retirement, right? So... I like that vehicle. Now, I believe in defense. I learned early on, 25 years ago, I got caught up in the frenzy and I bought the high-flying stocks and I bought some of the biggest mutual funds that were really out there. And I put in a lot of money into them and I was down 50, 60%, 70% in some cases in the 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. One fund I hung on to for 20 years because I wanted it to break even from where I bought it. It was a technology fund. I had some amazing returns in the middle. Like I had amazing returns, right? 
But it took me 20 years and I finally said, this is stupid. Just sell it and do what you're supposed to do. It's about not having the extreme low. So what I would be doing is I got to have money going into cash. I've got to have money going into stocks. I got to have some defensive things, whether it's a mutual fund that has put protections or it's a fixed income vehicle making one or 2%, like a bond account, short-term bonds, right? Short-term bonds, not a bad thing to have. Life insurance, cash values from a mutual insurance company, that's going to be a dividend paying thing. It's a wonderful, stable asset to have. The younger you start it, the better off it is. One of the first things I did out of the gate for myself is I bought a big whole life policy. That policy is 30 years old and that thing saved me numerous times during my life. All my kids have those when they graduate from college. I'm a big fan of doing it after college just for many, many reasons. And we max them out. We buy term insurance. We max them out so they can convert it. They can do things. An important thing to do is having these things in there. And today, what's great is it's so much easier to open up an account at a place, right? Where you can go to like an online thing and buy fractional shares of stocks. You can start an ETF with virtually no money, right? You know, you can get into these things and get started. Now you'll pay higher fees because, you know, the smaller the amount of invested, the higher the fee, but you got to start somewhere, right? And I think if you're doing that, if you make 50,000 and you just graduated college, if you start saving 20% of that, and you keep the habit of saving that 20%, no matter how much money you make, you always save 20%. I don't care where you put it, you'll never have a financial problem. The problem is most people start out and they go, I get to the end of the month and I have $2 in the bank and I don't have any money to save. So they skip the pay themselves first rule, right? So to me, you could put it in the 401k, you could put it in a cash account, you could put it in a bond account, you could put it in a Roth, you could put it in a life insurance policy. Just put it somewhere and get the habit down. That's the key. Get some money together and then start moving it in. Like I love to see as much cash as I can see, you know, at least 50% of a client's annual income, if not more. But guess what? You can't do that tomorrow. You got to build it over time. And you don't want to say, well, I got to put the money in the cash account first before I can put money in the market. It's unrealistic. I, if I have $10,000 to save, I should be breaking that up into $2,500 increments and putting it in multiple places. Put it in my cash account. Put it in my 401k. Put it in my, you know, my life insurance policy. Put it in a mutual fund, whether it's in a Roth or something else. And I should be balancing it out. When something does really well, I shouldn't get rid of the other things. I should take some profit and buy the other things that are doing really bad, Right. I should diversify my asset classes and I should have international and I should have emerging markets and I should have, you know, bonds of U.S. and foreign countries and I should have corporate bonds and I should have all kinds of stuff because you don't know what's going to happen. You can't predict the outcome. That's right. You mentioned in that rave just then about um, whole life insurance. <laughs> no, I don't mean to say that as in a negative way. It was a fantastic rave. But um, when you were discussing this with Barry, that whole life insurance is the secret. It's kept from ordinary investors when this is exactly the kind of thing that um, large corporations and financial institutions are investing in themselves. Correct. In Barry's book, you know, The Pirates of Manhattan and his series, he did a great, great thing where he revealed in the financial institutions, in the banks, there's tier one, tier two, and tier three capital. Tier one capital, the most secure, safest capital, one of the components in there 
is life insurance cash values. And banks buy, it's called bank-owned life insurance. You have corporate-owned insurance, you have bank-owned insurance, and they buy it in mass quantity and they own that and that's their stability. But yet the insurance company teaches you, the individual, to buy term, right? So it's the exact opposite of what the institutions are actually doing because you don't need insurance when you die at age 85. Who made that up? Like, think about that for a second, right? And this is going to be another rant, right? So the institution, the insurance company doesn't want to pay a death benefit when you die. When are you more likely to die? After 65 or before? Mm, After, yeah, of course. Mm. I sure as heck hope so. I'm 53 last week. And I don't want to die before 65. I don't want to even die before 85, let alone 105, right? But the insurance companies have taught us buy term, invest the difference. So by nature, the insurance company is going to collect this premium from you for 20 or 30 years. And now that you retire, you drop the insurance. So not only have you lost all the premiums, your family loses the death benefit, which could be millions of dollars, right? So let's say that I take my wife out for a wonderful dinner on my 65th birthday. And I say, honey, it's been a wonderful, wonderful, you know, 40-year marriage. I love you so much. We're going to retire. We're going to do the things that we want to do. And I'm going to drop all my life insurance tomorrow. What I thought you said that you love me, right? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? What, do I, what am I going to do? Now, think about it. When I die or she dies in the States, you lose one of the social securities, right? You're going to lose a pension. You might get half a pension. You might not have a pension. You're going to end up in a single taxpayer bracket, which is a higher bracket than a married filing joint. The financial pressure that you have after death The fact that any financial institution could tell you that you don't need insurance in retirement are absolute, I'm going to go out on a limb for Barry, morons. You know, I talk about all this stuff. I'm not holding anything back. All the podcasts that I have are talking about this. Like you need to think through it and you need to make decisions for yourself, not based on your brother-in-law or your neighbor. Yep. Not doing any tips. Yeah. I mean, tips are nice, but you know, how much money have you lost on tips? No, everyone's lost money on tips and you can't make a, a career out of tips, can you? I mean, what happens when that good tip runs out? You know, where, where do you go to next? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. John, before we started recording, I said um, you didn't sound very New Jersey, but as, as we went along, more and more of your inner Tony Soprano kept on popping out. <laughs> and as I get passionate, it comes out. I went to Boston for college, so I had a little Boston twang. I was in New Jersey, but you know, there's North Jersey and there's North Jersey. You know, when you look at like things like Jersey Shore on the thing, they're not from North Jersey. They're from New York, but they come to the Jersey Shore. It's a whole different world. So <laughs> so um, how can people get in touch and listen to your products and listen to the podcast? I mean, where is the Smallwood world? So the Smallwood world is at smallwoodwealth.com. Uh, the podcast is on iTunes and all kinds of places. All the usual podcast places. Wealth Curve Talk, isn't it? Wealth Curve Talk with John L. Smallwood. On our website at Smallwood Wealth, it's right on there. You'll see it. It's under the resources. You can request a couple of guides that are free downloads on there. All the podcasts are up on the website. The book is on Amazon at the moment. It's a bestseller, so you can request one there. We also do offer a free, no-obligation, 30-minute conversation. We call it the wealth curve conversation. And it's about you and your wealth and how can we help you. And it's really designed for you to feel comfortable with us and for us to feel comfortable with you because we want to work with the right people. Our firm doesn't have a minimum. All right. What our firm has is 
we're banking on your future and we want to be along for the ride, right? And we want to help you reduce taxes and reduce risk and reduce fees and costs, help you save more money, help you protect it, help you enjoy more in retirement and still pass the max amount of wealth to your kids. That's a perfect strategy. Hmm. It's really great to have a chat with you, John. Thank you very much. It's been great because the more that I go through um, making these podcasts, the more I think, well, hang on, people should maybe be getting an idea of financial advice and getting expert advice because you guys know this stuff. You guys know what's been going on and how the system works. And you just want to make sure that people aren't being gamed by the system or just going to be throwing their money away on some useless scheme for years. Yeah. And it's it's human nature. We all want to make the most amount of money. We all want to make the most amount of returns on our money. And it's easy to get caught up and you need to protect yourself. Like It's okay to take some small risk, but it can't be life-changing. Yep, that's right. John Smallwood, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, sir. It was really good to see you. And I look forward to our next time. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Sulas for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Remember, music flows when the money don't. 